314, Angels We Have Heard Online. seated and welcome to everyone who's here and Merry Christmas. This is our Christmas Eve uh, service this morning and tonight. So we want to encourage you tonight if you'll be back for our uh, special program tonight. We encourage you to come if you're able and to be a part. We'll have a lot of readings and singings and songs and specials and it'll be a wonderful time tonight. So I encourage you to come back. But we do want to welcome you if you're visiting with us, whether you're here with family or just visiting for the first time. Uh, we do have cards in the pews, and if you'd like to fill one of those out, we would have a record of your visit. We'd love to be able to reach out to you. Thank you for coming here and see if there's a way that we could minister to your family in any way. And so if you would, please fill that out. You can place it either in the offering basket as it comes or just lay it on one of the welcome center tables out in the foyer, and we'll be glad to pick that up as we go. Uh, let me give you just a few announcements. If you flip over, I'll let you read through all of those announcements. We do have the ministerial uh, fund going on, which is our Christmas fund to help pastors who are retired. So if you're here this morning and you came prepared and you have a check, you can just place that in the offering plate as normal. And in the bottom, just write Christmas offering or pastor relief, and we'll know where that goes. And for those of you who maybe are not prepared or even this year are leaving and don't have a chance, we do have envelopes in the office so that even if it's next year when you get back and you would still like to give, please come and see us in the office. You can give directly to the PCA. They'll keep track of those things as well. 
Um, but there's many different ways to be able to help the PCA as they reach out to. This money goes 100% to try to help widows and widowers, pastors and their wives make it uh, after they have retired and eventually ran out. So uh, a lot of ministers could use that help. Uh, other than that, we do please recognize the food bank next week for all who are a part of that. The All Church Fellowship next week is just bring food, bring it to pass. I won't tell you any favorite foods, but peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and jam or syrup and peanut butter and crunchy peanut butter or anything like that. I, not that I have a favorite, but if you're bringing a sandwich and soups, really the truth of it is bring whatever you want, bring enough to pass. If you're able to stay next week, we will not have Sunday school um, we are just going to have worship, and then afterward, we go downstairs and just fellowship. It's an opportunity to get to know some people that maybe in a smaller setting or a group setting, you don't normally get to do on Sunday morning. So please plan, come and stay, and even if you don't plan on staying and eating a lot and just want to fellowship for a while, it's just a fellowship opportunity. We do it this year. We did it the fifth every month that had five Sundays, and so we'll do that at the end of this month. And then you will see other announcements. It is uh, this morning, our last Sunday school. Again, next week we will not. So we, we pray for those who will not be here. Uh, well, let me make a special announcement. David will be praying later in our pastoral prayer time. But if you didn't see the note that went out, I just got it as well. But we want to definitely pray and reach out to uh, Rodney and April Gott. Um, this morning I had heard uh, through a thing in their ch church posted that he has been diagnosed with a brain tumor and is needing to have him. Uh, I'm sorry, his son, Zach, yeah. And... Um, He's have a, a brain tumor, and they're going to do some surgery coming up. And so we'll get together and find ways uh, to help uh, as we can. But just keep them in your prayer, uh, those of you who know Rodney and April who come here. But their son and his family go to Grace down uh, south in Calvert County. So uh, just keep them in, in prayer as well this morning. But other than that, I'd like to call us to worship. And uh, in just a moment, let me open in prayer, and uh, we'll continue here in worship. Heavenly Father, we do uh, come this morning and ask that as the Christmas season fast approaches, that we find its true meaning, that we uh, be able to look through and beyond and to be able to understand in ways we've never seen before the importance of our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, to you. Lord, I pray that through all that is happening and the hustle and the bustle and the anxiety that takes place, that Lord, you'll be with us so many families who still mourn, who still struggle who still wrestle with this time of year as they've lost loved ones or they're without for the first time. And Lord, a season that is to be merry may find themselves lonely. And so Lord, we pray this morning and tonight that as we worship, there'll be opportunities for us to open our hearts and minds and to glorify you through it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me as we call us to worship and prepare as we go forward. If you have a bulletin, please follow along. If you don't, please feel free to go to the foyer and pick one up so that you can continue to follow along in worship. From Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness and before him all our days. And to do that, 
we begin, obviously, by confessing our sins and coming before him knowing we need him. And so if you'll join me in the prayer that is printed there in the bulletin from the Scots Confession. Holy God, you created us in your likeness, but through original sin, the image of God was utterly defaced in man, and we became by nature hostile to God, slaves to Satan and servants to sin. And thus everlasting death has had and shall have power and dominion over all who have not been, are not, or shall not be born from above. This rebirth is wrought by the power of the Holy Ghost, creating in the heart of God's chosen ones an assured faith in the promise of God revealed to us in his word. By this faith, we grasp Christ Jesus with the graces and blessings promised in him. Amen. And we always find assurance of grace and pardon throughout the scriptures. It's hard to read just about anywhere without finding that. This one here says to us, may the God of all healing and forgiveness drawn, draw you to himself and cleanse you from all your sins that you may behold the glory of his son, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now let's continue in worship. If you would, singing hymn number 208, O Come All Ye Faithful.
may be seated. And as we come to the time of our Advent candle reading, I'm going to invite Byron and Robbie Johnson to come. Uh, Byron is another member of our green team as we've been doing this. And if you're here visiting with us, those are the ones who take care of all of our grounds. And so him and his wife come to our church, uh, I would say, by way of Texas uh, to be with us. If you haven't met them, what a blessing. But they're going to share with us this morning. As we continue our Advent season in the lighting of the candles of hope, peace, joy, and love, we are ever so close to the time when we recall Jesus' birth as well as his second coming. May the Lord use this season to draw you and your family closer to him. First, we relight the candle of hope as we are reminded that Jesus is our only hope. Next, we relight the candle of peace as we are reminded that Jesus himself is our peace. Next, we relight the candle of joy as we are reminded that Jesus is our true joy. Now, we light the candle of love. As Jesus' birth draws near, we are reminded of how much God loves us and what his love led him to do for us. John 3.16 is clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This love of God not only changes our lives, but his love commands us to love others the same way God loves us. 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus himself commanded us in John 13, 34, 35, saying, Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It is our prayer through this season that you and your family will experience the wonderful saving love of God in Jesus Christ and demonstrate this same love to others. Amen. If you will take your bulletin this morning as we have our confession of faith printed for us there, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, and we go to questions 157 and 158 and 159 this morning. And I'll ask you the question and then we'll all respond uh, in unison. How should the Word of God be read? We must read the Bible with high and reverent esteem being absolutely convinced that it is truly God's word and that only he can enable us to understand it. We should read with a desire to know, believe, and obey his will as revealed in the Bible. We should pray, be careful to, to its contents and the extent of its meaning, meditate on it, apply it to our lives, deny ourselves under its direction, and use it as a basis for our prayers. Who should preach the Word of God? The Word of God should be preached only by those who are sufficiently gifted and who are properly approved and called to do it. How should those who are called preach the Word of God? Those who are called to labor in the ministry of the Word should preach sound doctrine accurately, in season and out of season, clearly and not with seductive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. They should faithfully and fully express the whole counsel of God. This should be done wisely, 
taking into account the needs and capabilities of the audience. Their preaching should be motivated by a zealous and fervent love for God and the souls of his people. Finally, it should be done sincerely, aiming to glorify God and to convert, edify, and save his people. On this Christmas Eve, let's go to the Lord in prayer, the Lord of glory, the Lord of light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning as a congregation, as your people, called out by your spirit to worship and honor and adore you. Just as we have read, Father, and confessed with the confession this morning, how we thank you for the Bible, your holy word. And Father, we confess that often we have not obeyed and willfully submitted and listened. Our nature, our sinfulness is ever before us, but how we thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, on this Christmas Eve morning, how we thank you and praise you for the glorious good news of Christ for sinners, of whom we are the greatest. We would confess with our brother Paul that indeed, Father, we are great sinners, but you are a great Savior who has provided mercy and love through Jesus Christ, that you gave us through the preaching and hearing of your word in our lives faith to believe and understand that gospel, that good news. So truly, this is a season of thanksgiving and praise and honor to you alone for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we do rejoice as well with family and friends in this season. We do thank you, Father, that we can meet together with our families and, and others in freedom in this nation. We pray, Father, for this nation. We pray for revival in America, a turning away from sin and wickedness and submitting to that holy word, that Bible. And as we read, Father, again, only the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit can change hearts and lives, can change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, to change the heart to believe and understand, illuminate our hearts and minds to know the good news of the gospel of Christ revealed in your holy word. We thank you as well, Father, for the preachers called out on this Sunday to proclaim the good news of Christ that the Savior has come. And we especially pray this morning, Father, for Pastor Jerry as he brings the message. Just as we have read this morning of the preaching of that word, that you will give him the unction of your Holy Spirit, the illumination as he proclaims your gospel to us this morning and that we, we may have listening hearts and ears to understand and believe that good news of the gospel of the one who has come, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, this morning we also lift up those on our prayer list. We pray for Gay O'Hara and Sister Dana. We pray for Nellie Jones, continued healing, and for Autumn. And Father, we pray for those that are grieving, the family and friends of Ann Pining and Panning, and the family and friends of Van. We continue 
to pray, Father, for them. And for Mitzi and Charles Wicker, we pray for healing and strength for them, for Karen, Ken and Marilyn. And Father, we pray for Dan and Sheila and Bill and Kim and Phil and Karina Mahaffey. We continue to pray, Father, for direction, guidance, and leading for them and Dick and Donna and Silva and Beth and Joe Timmons and Tom, Tom Alexander and for, and for the Gott family as well, Father. We lift all of these before you this morning knowing that you are the great physician and the one who heals. And we lift them before you, Father, for you care for us. You love us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how we thank you that you hear our petitions and our requests, not because of any merit of our own, but because of the merit of Jesus Christ, our mediator, our Lord and Savior. And we thank you that we rejoice this season that he has come and Father, we look forward for his second coming, for when Jesus comes again and breaks the eastern sky, and we know we will reign on this earth in righteousness and truth for all eternity, and we will meet him in the sky and the air. We look for that day, Father, when the Christ comes again in this season and finishing up of this season of Advent for Jesus to come again. We would say with the Apostle John, Maranatha, come. Lord Jesus, and we continue to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Bible tells us on the first day of the week when God's people come together, they bring their tithes and their offerings. And so I'll ask the ushers to come to the front as we give our tithes and offerings this morning.
along in your bulletin as we continue to sing several. You'll see the hymn numbers printed, but the words there as well as we prepare.
Amen. You may be seated, and I hope you brought your Bibles with you, and thanks again for the choir and the music and the specials, and it's been wonderful to see all who have the gift to be able to share with us and help us as we move forward in worship. Uh, we're in Mark, and so if you're following along, you can turn to chapter 8 in the book of Mark. We've been studying through his writings, and it always works out well, it seems. The Lord knows when you're preaching expositorily, you don't try to plan out certain weeks, at least I don't, but it's always amazing how many times the texts fall in line with things that are going on. And this morning, as we're speaking about Peter's confession of Christ, what a day to be speaking about what we title, who is it or who do you think he is? Because all of us are confronted with the truth this Christmas of who do you say Jesus is? We're going to see how Mark gives us the story of how so many have placed him in lines with others and historical figures and important lineages, if you wish. But the real question becomes is, who do you think he is? And how does that change who you are? And so here in Mark chapter 8, beginning, if you will, and follow along in verse 27, we hear the follow-up of Mark's story after the feeding and the healing of the people when he turns to the disciples, the, the apostles, those who were chosen by him, and for the first time here in Caesarea Philippi, we get an option for someone to actually claim who they think this Jesus really is. It begins in verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way... He questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. In others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them. But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. And he was stating the manner plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What an amazing looking forward, if you wish, prospective forefront when talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, knowing that the ultimate plan and provision that he has for us is about the cross, is about the resurrection. It's not about just his birth, and I want to celebrate his birth, and I'm glad that God came to be with us, and I don't want to skip right over that, 
But I do want you to see the importance of Mark this morning and how it relates so well with who this Jesus really is. And so I want to divide it up, if I can, into three sections. I'll try not to belabor every point. But if I can, there's three different ways that we can look at what Mark is telling us about who this Jesus is. And he does it in three different sections. I'll use the words, they can be different for you. But I'll break it up in the first part and say he first confronts the apostleship. I'm going to use that word because we're talking about those chosen by God, following him, those that have been with him, those who are eyewitnesses of all the things over time that come. But we look at these people as the ones who should have all the right answers. And so first, he confronts the apostleship when he asks them in this same passage, well, who do these people say that I am? You can imagine this comes right after the healings, right after all that Jesus has done. They get into the boat. They go off onto their next journey. And rather than the disciples asking the questions, could you just imagine the feeling in a boat for a moment? When all of a sudden Jesus turns around, and if I could say it this way, says, hey, let me ask you guys a couple of questions. I could imagine they were starting to tremble a little bit, think to myself, oh my gosh, what's he going to ask us? Who's going to get the right answer? It's almost sometimes that same feeling that people have when the pastor sits in the Sunday school class, right? Because the question is always asked, and you always get that sense of feeling because sometimes a question is asked, and they're like, hey, what does this mean? And every eye goes like this. And you're like, well, I'm just sitting in. I'm just here listening. But it's, oh, the pastor's in the class. What if I say something wrong? Or what if it doesn't come out right? And man, what if I don't do this? It's that, can you imagine the one and only God himself in the flesh who has tried to reveal himself through all kinds of miracles and healings and works and wonders, healing of the blind, the seeing of the trees. It's almost as though he was saying to them, look, you've seen me as those blurry trees just like this blind man did. But let me ask you how clear it is now. Just who do people think I am? And when he gets this, it's a long list of these names. Listen to what he says. When some of them say that you are John the Baptist and others Elijah and others the prophets, folks, what a great list to be numbered amongst. Wouldn't that be great? If someone said, well, who do you think that guy that church is down there? Man, he must be someone with John the Baptist. Or he must be someone connected with Elijah. The one who was taken up. He must be connected with one of the prophets like Moses. I mean, that's a great lineage to be put into. But it doesn't get you any closer to the need that you have in your sins being forgiven. For none of them could do it. So no matter how close that they line him up and no matter how great they want him to look and no matter what people are thinking about Jesus, just seeing him as a great person, as a, a great historian, as someone from a great lineage is not enough Jesus wants more. Who is Jesus to you this morning? Well, he's a great teacher. I like his words. His sayings ring loud to me. I think he's got some good wisdom. I think all religions have some of those truths. Those are the words we hear. And then all of a sudden it gets a little more specific. I can't imagine when someone looks Peter who is already confessing that he is the Christ. He just said, and he probably spoke for the whole group because Peter's the one that rises up. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Christ. You can look at the others in Luke and Matthew and see how the stories unfold and give a little more details. But at the same time, Peter's the one that rises up and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah and yet doesn't even truly understand what he's saying. 
To say that he is the Messiah was probably linking him back to the whole historical understanding of the prophets and Elijah and the king that was to come, the warrior that would rise up, the one who would deliver his people, not from their sins, but from their condition of slavery, their captivity. They were wanting a warrior-like king, and Peter was here probably claiming those biblical truths that one would come one day and set us free. And you're the man. You're the one that can do that. And yet Jesus begins to change the story a little bit. He begins to tell them that when you claim that this is the Christ, this didn't come from you. Don't you tell anybody this. Matthew, the story, Luke, the other ones even remind us that the answer that you just gave, Peter, didn't come from your own teachings. You didn't get it from watching TV. We could say that to our kids today. You didn't get it from reading any other books. You didn't get it from some great wisdoms from along the side. To understand who Jesus really is only comes from the Father. As he sends his Holy Spirit to convict us, to open our hearts, our spiritual eyes, our ears, so that we actually hear the truth of what is there. I ask you this morning, who do you claim Jesus to be? If you claim Jesus to be your savior, oh, how blessed you are, for that did not come from your own doing. How blessed you are, because we didn't learn it from the TVs. We didn't learn it from the grade schools. We didn't learn it from others around us. To understand that Christ is the one who died for your sins, you are so blessed to know that the Holy Spirit has been working in your life, that God sent him just to you, and to open up that understanding so that you might know that God has chosen you amongst all in the world. At this moment in time, don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry what they think about Jesus. Don't worry about what they claim Jesus can do. At this moment in time, at this Christmas, this Christmas Eve, you have the right to answer the question, thank you, God, how blessed I am that my heart has been opened my eyes can see and I hear the truths of your word that you are the one sent to die for me, to exchange places with me. That's not what Peter said, but that's what we understand when we speak about the Christ. We know the whole story. We know how it unfolds. But the apostles were still there claiming roundabout ways and how it is that they could describe what everybody else was saying about Jesus. Here's the downside. If you're not careful, you fall into the trap of agreeing with what everybody else wants Jesus to be. You've got to be able to stand strong. You've got to be able to stand up in faith. Apostleship and following Jesus Christ cannot be done on the sidelines. You can't claim that Jesus is the Messiah and then live your own life and do your own things. Get busy and caught up in your own way of life and still claim Jesus on the side. There comes this issue of faith. In discipleship, of following, Jesus is going to remind us in just a moment the importance of following Jesus on the way. That's very important because for so many of us, we claim to have faith in Christ and we wait until the way has been determined and all works out and then we step up to say, yes, I like this. This is for me. When Jesus is saying, you've got to follow me all the way. Even when you don't understand, even when you don't grasp every detail, faith is the part of following Jesus Christ, 
staying with him, listening to him, not just lumping him in with what everybody else says. It's even so true that here this morning you might say, well, everybody else says that he's the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for the sins of his people, exchanged places with them, took their sin and shame, and took it upon himself and gave them his obedience. And now they stand in one, in a right relationship with God. That's what people say about Jesus. And I would have to say to you, boy, do I agree. But it doesn't matter what they say. My question to you this morning is, even when they're right, what does it mean to you? It doesn't matter if others are right. What matters is who do you say or think Jesus is? And if you claim he's the Messiah, it must change your life. You must have a proper understanding of who he is. It's not just about apostleship. He joins into verse 31 and he says, look, once he deals with the apostles and making them come to their own conclusion of who Jesus is, to stand up for the truth of who they claim he is, then he clarifies Messiahship. Write that down. It's not just the apostleship. It's about true Messiahship. He begins to explain it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. You can see Peter right now thinking, whoa, time out. Aren't you the king? I just said you were the Christ. I just said you were the Messiah. You were the anointed one. What do you mean you're going to suffer? What do you mean you're going to have to go through these things? Listen to the words. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. Folks, we're not talking about the lowliest of the low people in society. We're not talking about a king that was going to come and the world was going to hate him because they were against him. The low lifes of the sides, the people on the periphery, the people who didn't understand or couldn't read or wanted their own ways. Listen to what he says. He uses an important word. It's the Greek word day, D-E-I. It's the word that means it is necessary or must. It's the word that is used here when he said man must suffer, day. He wasn't saying that this is something that could possibly happen. He was saying it is necessary for this to happen. For me to be the Christ that you claim I am, let me clarify what that truly means. I am not coming as the warrior king to deliver you. I'm not coming to set all the captives free from the prisons that are here. I'm coming to take the servant's towel, not the warrior's sword. I'm coming to wrap it around my waist and to kneel before you and become your servant and to take your sins and to serve you. Oh, Peter couldn't stand much of that. You can already tell as the story begins to unfold. He must suffer many things. It is necessary, for if he doesn't suffer, he can't be the Christ. He can't take your sins. He can't cover them. He can't exchange places with you. You can't have a Christ that is not the servant suffering Messiah as well. You can't claim him to be the one who saves people and him not go to the cross. We must have a proper understanding of Messiahship. Too many of us have our own image of who we want Jesus to be. This morning, the question is, who do you really think he is? It changes how you live. It changes what you do. 
to understand true messiahship? Is it about being rejected by these leaders, those of his own? Folks, these are the spiritual leaders. These were the people that made up the Sanhedrins. These were the leaders of the law. These were the people that were leading the others to find the true Messiah. And they would be the ones that would reject him. Jesus looks at his own followers and says, it's going to be you who end up mocking me, ridiculing me, laughing at me, and being ashamed of me. You're the ones that are going to take me to the cross, not all these others. As you sit there thinking about that, just how have you mocked Jesus Christ? Just how have you made fun of what he claims in his truths? How many times have you turned your back on what he's asked you to do? And how many times have you denied him or spoken about him or resisted him in shame? And yet we call him the Christ. True messiahship. We must understand it. All of a sudden, look what Peter does. He takes him to the side, kind of like what most of us would probably do if we were totally caught off guard and said, Jesus, hey, look, man, let me clarify something. You're the Christ here, man. I just confessed it in front of all the disciples. Everybody just heard us say this. Now, you're supposed to be the king, the warrior, and the rise up and, and come in on this cloud and a horse and a stallion. You're supposed to change everything. You can't talk like this, Jesus. Let's go back and change things. He rebukes him. The king of the world. The creator of all things. He just claimed him as the Christ and then rebukes him. And here's what's so amazing. Is Jesus in turn turns back and listen to what he says to him. He rebuked Peter and he does it this way. Get thee behind me, Satan. Same words used in the temptation of the wilderness. When Satan showed up to Jesus and beckoned him to bow down before him. And he said, if you would just bow before me, you wouldn't have to go through all those things that are in front of you. Do you get this same temptation? Peter was saying, whoa, that's, that's true messiahship. We can't have suffering, mocking, scourging, ridicule. We can't have those things. We've got to have someone on top. It was no different than when Satan in the wilderness came to Jesus and said, if you would just bow before me, you wouldn't have to do all those things. What things? Well, you wouldn't have to go through the suffering." And you wouldn't have to go through the scourgings. And you won't have to go through the mockings. If you would just bow right now, then you wouldn't have to do all those things that are in front of you. What Peter didn't realize was that what Peter thought shouldn't happen is what Jesus knew was inevitable. Because you can't be the Christ, the Messiah, and not fulfill God's plan for his people. Oh, when we understand this true messiahship, it all of a sudden begins to sink down in. That not only would he die for the sins, not only would he take them, but he would rise again on the third day. He lays the entire plan of salvation out right here before those that are following him. A true picture of what you and I must believe. That Jesus would suffer for us. That he would die on the cross for us. That he would carry that cross to that place of execution. And it would be there that our sins would be placed on him. And that God would see that sacrifice. He would put him into the grave and deem it completely acceptable and be raised again on the third day and all that God planned for us would be accomplished. 
Is that what you mean when you say Jesus is the Christ? Has he covered your sin? Have you placed your sins on the back of Jesus Christ? Has he carried your sins to the place of execution? It becomes a reality when we begin to realize that we're claiming all kinds of truths just like Peter. And we're following Jesus in all kinds of ways, but it hasn't changed us a bit. We struggle just like an apostleship did. A false understanding of comparing Jesus to what everybody else claims him to be. We struggle with Messiahship, truly understanding what it is that must take place. Jesus said it this way in verse 32. And he was stating the manner plainly, parousia. That's that word that we used earlier that means to speak clearly. It's not in parables. He made it as clear as he possibly could. This is what must happen to me if you call me the Christ. How much more clear could it be for you? What else does Jesus need to say to you? To speak to you, parousia, plainly, clearly, to the point. Do you or do you not understand the Messiah? Has he covered your sin? Just as he turned to Satan and said, get thee behind me, Satan. Our other writers tell us, you can go to Luke chapter 4, he gives us the same story when the Satan, or the end of the story says this, Jesus defeats him in the wilderness, and then it says this, and Satan would return at an opportune time. I believe that was now. Right when Peter says, you are the Christ, Satan shows up. Satan enters into the life of Peter, if you wish, and he begins to rebuke Jesus Christ. At the opportune time, when all things are there, when Jesus is laying it out, and it's no different in your life, Satan shows back up at the opportune time. One more opportunity to get Jesus to bow down, to stop the mission, and to not go forth with what is necessary, and to change what's going to happen. That's why he looks at Peter and simply says, get thee behind me, Satan. It's not going to work this time either. You tried once before. You said you would return. And you're still defeated today. I'm not sure in your life, but as I prayed through this, I thought to myself, how many times has Satan used the opportune time in my life? He spoke through Eve. He roars like a lion slithers like a snake, an angel of light in disguise. And it just might be you that Satan has chosen the opportune time to show up in the midst of your marriage. Right when you took Christmas Eve to say, let's renew our vows, let's make this right, let's get back on track. And for someone else to say, oh, but we've tried so hard, we've done this before, it never works out. I've heard those words before. I've seen this down. I've been down this path. And you want to look out and go, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Because the moment you always try to start afresh, the moment as Pastor David prays for revival, the moment that times begin to change, the moment that things go in the, the moment you were baptized, the moment you came to the Lord's Supper, those are the opportune times in your life that Satan surfaces back up disguised in someone else. This Christmas for some, he will show up and say to some, I don't love you anymore. For some, Satan will show up, I don't want to live here anymore. For some, he'll show up, I just don't think I can handle this. And in the worst case, he shows up sometimes in those we love the most. I just don't want to live any longer. At the opportune time to discourage all that Christ has for you. To see if whether or not you truly understand Messiahship. That he will suffer and he must suffer for you. It's not unfamiliar. Listen to what he says after he says, get behind me. We move from apostleship to Messiahship. And now he goes to discipleship. This is you and I. We're the followers. He pulls us into the story and listen to what he says to the crowd. That's you and I. He's pulling everybody in in Caesarea Philippi. This isn't a Jewish settlement. These are the people that are all around, most of them Gentile, people who are outside the promises. He's looking to the crowds of the people and he simply says this, if anyone wants to come after me, this open invitation of Jesus Christ. If anyone wants to come after me, he must. The same word that is used for Jesus Christ in his suffering is used for you. Let me rephrase it. If anyone wants to come after me, it is necessary that you deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. True discipleship. It's a matter of how it is that we understand how the apostleship also fell short. The messiahship brings it clear. But now discipleship gives it to us in phases. When he says, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross. It's a normal procedure. Folks, people were very familiar with the Roman way of execution. They would take those cross beams, if you wish. They would lay them out because they were there by the thousands down the roads. That was the way the Romans could convince you not to sin is they would line the criminals up down the sides of the roads and they would just crucify them one right after the another by the thousands down the roads. And so the cross beams, if you could look at it this way, it would be like railroad ties. You ever drove down the street and see a bunch of railroad ties stacked on the side of the road? It would be like when you see one of those stacks. They were normal because when a person was at judgment, the very next step was to pin the beam to their shoulders and have them carry that cross beam to the place of execution. Jesus wasn't treated any different. Do you remember when Jesus was found guilty and he had to carry his own beam as far as he could? Are you carrying yours? Are you bearing the burdens? The mocking that comes from others when you stand up and say you're a Christian, when the opportunity comes because you treat someone nicely when they've treated you wrongly? Are you ashamed when people say, oh, you're one of those Jesus people? 
Have you spent your whole life building your own career, taking care of everything that you need to make sure your life is settled and secure? Or have you really just said in a nutshell, I've lived my life ashamed of Jesus Christ, too busy with my own things, too caught up in my own way of life, too busy with what it is that's been demanded of me in this world. And now all of a sudden, discipleship comes into play. For whoever wants to save his life will what? What a cost. To think that you spent your whole life preparing your life to be just what you wanted it to be. You planned out retirement, where it would be, how long it would last, how it would unfold, who would be a part of it. And you did it at the cost of losing your very own soul. The Greek word psyche used for that inner being of one that belongs to God. That inner soul part that he's created. Oh, I'm not saying everybody that has something in retirement is lost, but I'm asking you the same question. Jesus turned to these people in the boat, had them in a captive audience, and he then turns to the crowd and simply says, have you counted the cost of what you just said? You just called me the Messiah, and you didn't even understand Messiahship. You're saying you want to follow me, but you haven't even counted the cost. And the truth of it is, you say, I'm going to be the one that delivers you, and yet you're ashamed for anyone else to know. I was reading through several of the writers. I wish I would have wrote it down. I don't even remember it. I like reading. Many of you know that. And as I'm reading through and studying, one of the writers got to a point that asked this question. He said, when you're thinking about being ashamed of Christ, I just remember this. I wrote it down. It's a paraphrase. But he said this, who does not know in your inner circles, in your life, of those people that you're with and around, who does not know that you're a Christian? It tells you whether or not you're ashamed. Because how could anyone in your circles not know you're a Christian and you say you're not ashamed what else would be of most importance to talk about what else would be of top priority that would concern the conversations is Jesus the most important thing person place event you name it we can't compartmentalize it You can't say Jesus is in this part of my life and yet I live this part of my life. I turn to Jesus when I need these things but then I go back to this part of my life when they're right. He's not just in one aspect. He simply says to them, you must take up this cross and follow me. It's the journey of staying with me. Do you know what makes us disciples? By definition, we're followers. Do you know what makes someone a leader? They have followers. That's it. Man, that's not a hard concept. He spoke it plainly. He said, look, if I'm going to be the leader and you're going to be the disciple, we've got to get this thing prioritized because you can't claim to be following me and then every time I turn around, you're not there. 
You can't claim to say you're bearing your own burdens and carrying the cross, and every time I turn around, you're putting them on somebody else. And you can't say that you profess me to be the Messiah when every time someone shows up, you deny me or refuse to talk about me and are embarrassed. Oh, I bet you he just gave Peter a little glimpse of the future that he didn't even know about. Peter, who thought he had all the answers, would rebuke the one who created the world and would be the one that denied him what? Three times. Discipleship. What good, he says, is it benefit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? How many of you have forfeited your soul? Let me back up. Is it any different than when we forfeit our families? When we had so many other priorities that our families took the brunt of it, paid the price for what we thought was right. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves, have we counted the cost? Has it profited us in the long run to run over our children, our spouse, our neighbors, even our church? Has it profited us to do all those things just to get where we want to be? Jesus simply says, what good is it if you gain all that and forfeit your very own soul? What good is it to call yourself a disciple, to be one of my apostles, to claim that I am the Messiah, to go to church, read your Bible, pay your tithes, love your pastor, all these things. What good is it if you haven't counted the cost and you're still ashamed? What profit is there in all those things and you not get to spend eternity with Jesus? How could he speak it, he says, any more plainly? You either focus on the godly things or the godless things. You either focus on the things that are above or the things of this world. You count the cost and either follow me or the desires of your own heart. And so then he finally says in the last little bit, for whoever is ashamed of me, Mm. For whoever is ashamed of me, listen to what he says. In this adulterous and sinful generation, there are many who are ashamed of Jesus Christ. Buck him all the way, turn their backs on him, and want nothing to do with him. And they're no different from the one who doesn't understand who Jesus truly is and have yet to truly committed their lives to him. We don't measure eternal life on how bad we are. We measure eternal life on whether we've counted the cost 
whether we've made the decision, come to the conclusion that he is the Christ and he's my savior. He's covered my sins. He's taken my sins to the grave and I am not ashamed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God unto what? Salvation. And so we find ourselves in the most humiliating place that I could ever find myself. And that's in the presence of all those being judged. When I race to the front of the line and find out that my own person that I said was my Lord and wasn't is now ashamed of me. I've won a lot of races in my life, claimed a lot of victories, brought home a lot of prizes, have been, been deemed first many a times. But just what does that profit when I stack all those things up in front of you, the first of the line, in the presence of the gates, and have Jesus simply say, but you know, Jerry, I'm ashamed of you. Because you said all the right things. Convinced all the people about who you are. And acted as though you were one of my most faithful. And yet you were ashamed of me. And now I'm ashamed of you. Just what's the cost in your life? It's not too late. If there's someone in your life that doesn't know you're a Christian, you still have time to tell them. If there's places in your heart that you've compartmentalized Jesus, it's time to open them up and let them have them all. If there's opportunities that you've denied him before others, it's time to confess him. It's time to make it right, to cast it all on him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. For clarifying to the apostles that it doesn't matter what others think, it matters what we think. It doesn't matter the decision they've made, it matters our decision. Lord, thank you for clarifying Messiahship. Helping us to see the importance of why it is you must suffer. It's necessity. Lord, that the plan of the Father can be fulfilled through you and your obedience. Father, forgive us for trying to have a Christ that does not match the scriptures, for using Jesus to our own gains, our own purposes. Father, thank you for clarifying discipleship in what it truly means to follow you. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to deny ourselves. Help us to be more godly, God-focused, and God-centered. Help us to take up our cross. Father, help us to see that it, though we can do anything in this world, we need help with the heaviest weight of all, our sins. And Lord, help us to follow you. Give us the strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and enable us to stay with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you have your bulletin there before you, you'll also see it in hymn number 224. If you'll stand with me, if you're able, as the choir comes to help lead us in our closing hymn, 224, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Maybe we should rename that song, Don't Be Ashamed. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.